but to all who are weary and in need of rest, to all who are weak and in need of strength, to all who are lonely and who could use a friend, to all who sin and are in need of mercy, come to the Lord Jesus Christ who will give you all of those things. I invite you this morning to point your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I'm Jamie, one of the pastors here. I'm going to be reading the rest of Luke 19 and a little bit into Luke chapter 20, continuing on in our series through the gospel of Luke. I think this is maybe the 78th or 79th message in the gospel of Luke. Uh, so I appreciate you guys keep coming back. It's, it's a great blessing that you showed to me to allow me to do this uh, with you every Lord's Day. Luke 19, I'm going to read from verse 45 down to chapter 20, verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, there is one provided for you in the pew in front of you, and you'll find our passage uh, on page 879 of the church Bible. I'm going to read and pray, and then we'll get started working our way through this this passage. I'm sorry, we'll be starting in verse 41. Luke, Luke chapter 19, verse 41 and following. This is the word of the Lord. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Chapter 20. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? They answered them, I also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they were convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Father, we submit ourselves to you and we ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit and that you would answer our brother's prayer and that you would give us ears to hear 
and that you would enable us to understand what it is that we're reading here. May Jesus be clear in this text this morning and let us see him and let us rejoice in him and let his words lay upon our hearts. Let us take hold of him and let us be like these people, hanging on Jesus' every word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible has two parts. It has all of the things that are pointing forward to Jesus Christ, and it has all of those other things that are pointing back to Jesus Christ. And the first part of the Bible, the part that we call the Old Testament, it ends with the God of heaven and earth telling his people about the day when his messenger, the Messiah, will come to his temple. He tells them in Malachi chapter 3, he says, The Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. The reason Messiah brings a refining fire and the launderer's bleach is that the worship of God had been corrupted and polluted. The temple of God in Jerusalem was meant by God to be a house of prayer for all the nations of the world. And that means that anyone, Jew and non-Jew alike, could come and worship the Lord and find mercy for their sins, and so the name of the Lord would be great in all of the earth. But Israel, the covenant people of God, had broken God's covenant. They had corrupted God's worship. They had oppressed the poor. They had barred the way for non-Jews to approach Yahweh. And so through the prophet Malachi, the Almighty says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. In the passage before us today, we see that one did come. That Jesus Christ is the messenger of the covenant, the delight of God's people. He is the prophet, priest, king who came to the temple of Yahweh and shut the doors to the corrupted worship of God. He reformed their worship. He taught the truth. He opened the door for the nations to come and find mercy for their sins. And through him, God the Son, the name of the Lord would be made great among the nations. And even though we in the 21st century live on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, in the new covenant, 
without temples, without animal sacrifices, our worship is no less prone to the same kinds of corruption and pollution. And that makes this passage as relevant to us today as it was to Luke's original audience. Like Israel, we can miss our Messiah. We can misappropriate our worship. We can lack a burden for the lost. We can become greedy for materialism. And we can become sluggish in our prayer. And so we need our Lord to come to us as he did to the temple 2,000 years ago. We need him to come and walk among us as he walked among the lampstands in Revelation. We need him to evaluate the appropriateness of our worship and to cleanse our lives with his refining fire and launderer's soap. The question is, will the Lord weep over what he sees in our lives? Will he rebuke us? And how will we receive his correction? Will we weep with him? Will we reform for him? Will we question his authority? Here's the big idea this morning. Cling to Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, who reformed and restored right worship of God. Cling to Jesus, God the Son, who reformed and restored right worship of God. Here we see that Jesus Christ has the authority to restore and reform right worship of God. He has to tear things down to do so. But before he tears down, our Lord tears up. Let's read verses 41 to 44 again. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he, Luke says, wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, if you've been with us in this series through Luke, you'll remember way back in chapter 13 when the Lord already offered a lament over the city of Jerusalem. Back in thir chapter 13, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing and then he tells them, behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that day which Jesus had foretold in chapter 13 had come. For the Lord had come into Jerusalem riding on the back of the colt of a donkey. And the people saw him and they cried out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And while their lips honored him as king, their hearts would not submit to him as king, Jesus knew that he would be rejected by these people just a few days after this. 
And so with the praise of his people still in his ears, Luke says, Jesus wept. Now Jesus weeps three times in the Gospels. Once at the tomb of Lazarus, once again at the Garden of Gethsemane, and then here. And the word that Luke uses to describe Jesus weeping is the same word that he uses for the women who wept when Jairus' daughter had died. It is a wailing cry, a cry with a deep agony, a, a sobbing. And Jesus is weeping over the death of the holy city, the nation of Israel, who would soon reject him as their Messiah, as their king. And he'll explain all of this in the parable that we'll consider, Lord willing, next week. Jesus is God the Son. He has authority to tear down, for he is the all-knowing judge. And Israel had forsaken the covenant that God had made with them, and they had corrupted the worship of God. But before our Lord tears them down, he tears up. And here we see the heart of Christ, tender, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so before the Lord lays waste to the city, he weeps over her. And this is the heart of Christ toward his people today. His reforming of our worship is for our good and for our joy. The Bible says that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. You see, Christian, he has never turned against you, but he is turned against the thing that is hurting you. He is like a mother at the best bedside of her daughter with leukemia. She hates the cancer, but she loves her daughter. It is her love for her daughter that drives the hatred of the thing that is destroying her daughter. And so it is Jesus' love for you that would drive his discipline of you. He moves toward the thing that is destroying you and destroying it, not you. And so when you, Christian, feel that you are under the refining fire of God, when God is refining your worship, when He is bleaching the elements of your life stained by pride and arrogance and your love of the world, He's not destroying you, but the thing that is destroying you, the thing that is keeping you from seeing Him, from enjoying Him. Our Lord weeps. This is true of all good Christian leadership. Church, beware any man in authority without the capacity for sorrow over the lowest and the least. Beware the leader who does not lament. PBC, a man may preach like Charles Spurgeon. He may have the mind of John Calvin, but if he can't be seen at the bedside of the sick or helping the poor, if he's more comfortable talking theology with his bros than he is taking tea with a widow, 
If he'll sooner pick a fight on Twitter than to pick someone up for church, then you keep him as far from the office of elders as you can. And this reality applies to a lot of things. Sarah and I teach our girls that in courtship, watch how a young man treats the least of these. Watch how he treats children, those with special needs, the poor, the dirty. Does he move toward the needy or does he put off by the needy? Is he impatient, inconsiderate, insensitive? Do his criticisms outweigh his encouragements? And if so, he ain't the one, baby doll. He's a 10, but if he's harsh, he's a 1. We see in Jesus a perfect balance of toughness and tenderness. Yes, Jesus cleanses the temple, for there is a time, but he weeps over it first, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. If you remember from last week's passage, peace is a person, and the people in verse 38 called for the peace of heaven, and here he was. This was their visitation. And in a few short days, they will reject him, and they will also be rejecting peace. And so Jesus says what they need has been hidden from their eyes. Their unbelief, the God of this world had blinded the minds of these unbelievers, and they could not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jerusalem rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and God gave them over to blindness. The Lord foretells the destruction of the holy city with astonishing and horrifying detail. He says that their enemies will surround them and set up a barricade and hem them in and tear down the city, and not one stone will be left upon another. The first century historian Josephus tells us that's exactly what happened in the year 70 AD when the Romans came in and leveled the city and put an end to the temple, which hasn't been rebuilt since. And Jesus Christ is the weeping prophet foretelling of the judgment of God to come. And next we see Jesus Christ is the priest king who cleanses the temple of God and establishes the right worship of God. We see that in verses 45 to 48. Let's read it again. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you've made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they could not find anything to do for all the people were hanging on his words. Here's what's going on in the temple when Jesus enters it. The whole city is preparing to celebrate the Passover feast which is an annual celebration that remembers when God delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt. 
Long ago, God brought his people out of slavery, having his people place the blood of a, of a, a lamb without blemish on the doorposts of their home. And as God's judgment passed through Egypt, it would see the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and it would pass over that household and spare them the judgment. The Jews celebrated this miracle every year. And so there are a lot of people traveling from all over to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And part of the fe festival was to sacrifice an animal on the altar and to pay the annual temple tax. And for many, it would not have been feasible to bring an animal with them at such a far distance. And the temple tax could only be paid in shekels, which was a, a currency that wasn't used all over the Roman provinces. And so visitors to the city would have to convert their currency to shekels to buy an animal for sacrifice and to pay their temple tax. Well, the priesthood in Jerusalem saw this as a lucrative business opportunity. They provided the exchange for the people. For a fee, of course. And this made them very rich. And when Jesus enters the temple, Luke says he drives out all of those people who were doing this economy. They were selling. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is overturning the tables. In, in Mark's account... He even keeps people from walking around and holding things. And you have to understand that this is, that the temple grounds were huge. Think like multiple football fields of people standing, there are thousands of people. It's loud, the sounds of coins are clinging, sheeps are bleeding, men are laughing and haggling. And here comes this man, Jesus of Nazareth, furiously flipping over tables and coins are splashing and people are scrambling. It's this huge commotion. Picture our Lord standing wide-legged with his chest heaving and sweat coming down his forehead and this thunderous voice, the voice of God himself saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. Jesus is no hothead. This is calculated and controlled. And in his words, Jesus is telling them what he's doing and why he's doing it. Even in a moment of hot passion, the Lord is weaving together Scripture passages. He weaves together two Bible passages in verse 46. The first comes from Isaiah 56, which we read at the call to worship. And often when the Lord quotes a snippet of Scripture, He has in mind the whole section. And so in Isaiah 56, God the Father is reminding the nation of Israel of His purposes for making them His people. They were His chosen people, a kingdom of priests to represent Yahweh to the nations of the world. This is Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, which we read at the opening. Listen to the purpose that God, the purpose God gave to Israel and the reason that he was, they were his chosen people. And the foreigners, that's the non-Jews, and the foreigners who join themselves 
to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." The priesthood in Israel in the first century was putting barriers between these foreigners, the people of God, and God himself. Those whom Yahweh had chosen to be his witnesses, to tell the nations of his glory so that his name would be great among the earth, they had kept people, especially non-Jewish people, from the Lord. And the priesthood had turned the temple of God, into a marketplace. They had turned his house of prayer into a place of their business. And they built up a wall between God and his people, appointing themselves as the ticket agents at the point of entry. And Jesus has had enough. And so he brings aggressive reform to their worship. Well, I said there are two passages. The second part of the Lord's rebuke comes from the prophet Jeremiah. A long time ago, the Lord told the prophet Jeremiah to stand at the temple, the gate of the temple of God, and to rebuke his people. For in Jeremiah's day, they were practicing injustice. They were oppressing non-Jews. They were neglecting orphans and widows. They were worshiping false gods. They were breaking commandments. And then they would just come to the temple and they would offer their sacrifices as a way to placate God. And so they could just continue on in the same very sins that they were offering a sacrifice on behalf of. And the Lord asks them, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And so like Israel did in Jeremiah's day, Israel is doing in Jesus' day. They turned the temple of God into a criminal hideout, a den of robbers. Rather than coming to the Lord to offer a sacrifice to cover their sin, express faith in Him to deliver them and show mercy to them, their offering was to keep God off their back. So He'd leave them alone. And they would continue on in their sin. They were hiding their sins behind the sacrificial system itself. The human heart is capable of great deception. And subtly, our obedience to the Lord shifts from gratitude for who God is and what He has done to a means by which we placate him, to keep him at arm's length. And we tell ourselves, if I do what God says here, well, then he'll leave me alone over here. I'll give him my time, but don't you mess with my finances. Or I'll give him my finances... Just don't talk to me about my pride. It's a sanctimonious sleight of hand. And the Lord sees it. 
And the Lord exposes this hypocrisy in Jerusalem and rebukes the priesthood. More than that, he rebukes their false worship and then restores the right worship in Israel. Verses 47 and 48 show us exactly what right worship looks like. Notice, Jesus is teaching daily in the temple, and all the people were hanging on his words. This is right worship. The word of God being taught to the people of God who are clinging to the Son of God. The people hanging on his every word. Literally, hanging on everything that's proceeding out of him. This is right worship. Jesus in the center, everyone delighting in him. The Spirit of God moving through the Word of God upon the people of God so that they hold on to the Son of God. Look, church, we can get a lot of things wrong, but if we get that right Sunday after Sunday, we're going to be all right. Right worship exposes false worship. And hypocrisy hates being exposed. And so, as you might imagine, these chief priests, scribes, and principal men of the people are seeking to destroy Jesus. I mean, after all, he just tore down their means for profit and set up a pulpit in its place. And so they go after him. And in chapter 20, we learn just how they do. So chapter 20, verse 1. One day, Jesus is teaching the people in the temple, preaching the gospel, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they come to him and they say to him, tell us by what authority you do these things. Who gave you this authority? He answered, I'll also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it amongst one another and said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe in him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the enemies of Jesus, they come to him and they question his authority. And I love verse 1. What do they find him doing? (laughs) Teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Restoring the right worship of God. And they say, tell us by what authority you do these things. Who gave you this authority? And actually, it's a rather reasonable request. This man, after all, had ridden into Jerusalem on the cult of a donkey, fulfilling a messianic prophecy given to Zechariah. He'd received the adulation of the people who hailed him as king. He'd come into the very temple of God, the center of the worship of Yahweh, and he reformed everything, turned over the tables, chased people away, sets up his own pulpit in the middle of the temple, And begins preaching and teaching the people. Now they very much understood what he was doing. He was replacing them completely. You understand, it was the purpose of the priests, not just to help them in offering sacrifices, but to teach them God's word. And so he is very much replacing them. So they just want to know, who do you think you are? Imagine if some guy walks into British Parliament and tells all of the members of Parliament, you guys are a bunch of thieves. You've been doing everything wrong. And then he rewrites the whole constitution and declares himself as king and says that this whole government is about me. 
I mean, the right question to ask would be, who put you in charge? Who do you think you are? This man, Jesus of Nazareth, stepped in to reform all the worship of Yahweh. And he wasn't even born into the priesthood. He's not a recognized Torah scholar. He didn't even go to seminary. What gives him the right? Which is a good question. In fact, it's the question of questions. Who is Jesus Christ? What gives him the right to declare himself as God? To forgive sins committed against God? To reinterpret Torah? To change the Sabbath laws? To declare all foods clean. To say that the whole Bible was written about him. These are massive claims. I mean, you understand that Jesus came onto the scene and one of the very first things that he did was to preach, repent, and believe in the gospel. Which is effectively saying, you're all going the wrong way. You're all believing in the wrong things. I know the right way. I am the truth. Follow me. He says that he's the only way to God. He says that all who came before him were thieves and robbers. He says that he's the truth. And so we should all be asking the question, who is Jesus Christ? And what gives him the right to say these things? If you're not a Christian and you're here today, as Glenn said earlier, we're so happy that you're here. We're glad that you came out. I want you to know you should be asking that very question. Who is Jesus Christ? Can I help you? Take one of those black Bibles from the pew in front of you home today. And this afternoon, start reading in Luke chapter 1. And read all the way through the entire gospel of Luke. Ask God to reveal to you who Jesus Christ is. Because if Jesus Christ is who he said he was, if he truly died on the cross for sin, if he was truly laid in a grave, and if he truly got up out of the grave three days later, then who he is matters more than anything else. Come back next week. Ask someone around here to begin meeting with you and telling you more about Jesus Christ. And how by turning to him in faith, repenting of your sins, you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be baptized and join the family of God and receive all the blessings of God to Jesus because of the gospel. Jesus responds to their request with a request of his own. Saying, now you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? It's a simple question, but it doesn't have quite a simple answer. But he's, at least it doesn't for these fellows. They're not stupid. He knows, they know that he's got them in a pickle. Because if they say that his authority came from heaven, well, that implicates them. Because they rejected John and his baptism. But if they say that his authority came from man, then, then they got trouble with the people. Because the people recognize John as a prophet. And so they just take the hit. We don't know. And so Jesus says, neither am I going to tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus the Messiah both came from heaven. 
their authority came from God the Father. And if the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders had believed John, they would have believed Jesus because Jesus, John was very clear. I came to bear witness about him. Remember what John said when Jesus came onto the scene? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Son of God. But they didn't believe John. And they didn't believe Jesus. In the pages of Holy Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ has come to His temple today. Now, there's no temple in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that you, Christian, are the temple of God. And so I ask you, what business has the Lord found going on in your heart? Has He found reasons to tear up, to tear down? Is your life more like a house of prayer for all the nations? Are you engaging in the active work with the Holy Spirit to bring people to Jesus? To help people see Him? Or is your life more like a den of robbers? A place where you're seeking to hide your sins. A place where some sins go unaddressed, unacknowledged. Unacknowledged. And will the Lord have to meet you with a refining fire and launderer's bleach? The Lord Jesus Christ was the only true worshiper of God the Father. He was the only one whose heart contained no contaminant of sin and no impurity. And he submitted himself to the fire. His death on the cross brings full cleansing to your life. It is his resurrection which has secured your perfection. And by faith in Him and through union with Him, you can rest in His perfect worship. You can cling to Him. You can hang on to His every word. And in so doing, you're counted as perfect. And through the work of His Spirit, you can submit to His refining fire and launderer's bleach as He cleans out of your life every impurity and corruption and misplaced affection. You can trust Him to use the least severe means to kill the cancer in your life and bring you into everlasting joy. The Lord has authority to refine and reform, and His authority is for your good. Christian, lay all before Him. Submit to His cleansing work. And let the tables of your disordered affections be overturned and become the house of prayer to all the nations so that through your life, through that your worship of God the Son, the name of the Lord would be made great in all the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that We've been long in need of reform, that we are much like Israel, and our worship is often misdirected and misappropriated, and that we have often turned the grace of God into a license for sin, 
And our hearts have become a hiding place for all sorts of sin. Please forgive us. Lord, come and cleanse our lives. Bring your gentle and firm corrective. Reveal the love of Jesus to us, his majesty, his glory. Show us our Lord. Let us see him. For he is most deserving of a pure and spotless bride. Holy Spirit, cleanse us, clean us, shape us into the image of Christ. Make us the aroma of Christ to God. And let our lives, our church, become what you have called it to be. A house of prayer for all the nations. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. At the end of our service, we go to God's holy word, having trusted in him for the forgiveness of our sins and seeking an assurance that we have been forgiven. Today's assurance comes from Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Please join us for one more song.